This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. There's a certain grief uh, involved in it, and I was in the back, and we were just before we were praying. I was saying that to the other uh, people in the room, and I said, "It's a grief, but it's a good grief." And then Dan seemed to really enjoy the fact that I sounded like Charlie Brown uh, saying "good grief," and I was thinking that should have been the name of my message, "good grief," and I didn't. So you could just sort of superimpose that over my very boring title of commission. Uh, today, because that is a good name for it, is good grief, and I've never thought of it. Now, now I have a whole new appreciation for what Charlie Brown is saying. Uh, but in a situation like this, the best way that I've likened it to try and articulate it in my own soul is the equivalent of sending a child off to be married or to college or something. And what they're doing is something you support and you're excited about it. But what you go through in a parental position is a form of trauma and grief. And it's good, but why is it so hard? And I've been feeling that pretty intensely over the past couple weeks. Uh, you guys are very dear to me, and what I've seen God work in this environment has been very precious to me. And I desire it to stay that way. Uh, but there is a shift of how I will be engaging with this body. And in a sense, it's, I guess, like having a child be married. You're just organized in your relationship just a little different. It doesn't mean you're out of their life. So all that to say, that's where we're at. And I need to have a message today that I give. Someone asked me if I was going to cry today. And I've never planned, it's never been in my notes to cry. Uh, So I have no idea. I've never been able to force myself to cry. Uh, But... I'm in that sort of delicate, vulnerable uh, state where I don't know what's going to come out. But uh, my message isn't the sort of cry message. It's more of a hoorah message. So uh, I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll find out. You get to go on the journey with me. The t- uh, so sorry about the title, guys. I, I did actually have some other creative titles, and I just felt like, you know what? I, I'm, this is what it is. And commission is I, I should have broken down the, the, the word, maybe defined it out of Webster's Dictionary or something. I actually did look it up in 1828 Webster's, and it didn't quite say it because the, the definition has subtly changed over time. But it's like the imparting of an instruction. It's not just like, go, go. It's go with this. That's why the Great Commission is a commission to actually not just go, but to do something specific. It's, it's an instruction that in, is involved in ascending. And uh, so I have a little subtitle here, because you are headed out into hostile territory against a hostile foe. And so when you commission someone, you want to give them instructions, sort of like the mom that says, and make sure you button up your coat, make sure you wear your gloves, make sure, there's just things that a mom is going to think of. And dads, we think of different sorts of things. Uh, When we're sending out, well, a pastor thinks of certain things too. If I knew 
that you were being sent out as a church into the spiritual territory that I am very familiar with. I have, I have touched it up close. I have felt what our leadership will feel. And by me moving to this side, I know what's going to come on them. And what would I say to you in such a commission? Well, that's, that's what this is, okay? So, oh, and I put this, I had Sandy put this in so I wouldn't forget. I'm famous for forgetting. We are, uh, as Ellerslie, uh, the training school, we have a student body coming in, what is it, this, this upcoming weekend, this next weekend, and that's very exciting for us, and we're going to, we, we do seven days a week, we do something called Daily Thunder, and starts at 8.15 every day of the week, and over the weekends, we're likely going to be adjusting the time uh, a little later in the morning. Our desire is that it would sort of dovetail well, so we'll be working with the church leadership on that dovetail well where someone could actually go to Daily Thunder and then actually step in here without having to drive here, have this awkward hour, two-hour gap to just sort of meander around Windsor and then come to church. So we're, we're working on that, and that's just something to stay tuned to. Uh, we have something called the Purity Summit that is going to be taking place uh, I think it's on the 22nd, Sunday afternoon and evening. It's four different sessions that we're going to be giving, uh, dealing with the issues of purity, the attack on this issue in our uh, current Christian culture, and establishing uh, some clear statements on the matter. If that's something that would interest you, if you have young kids that are walking through this, that could be tremendously encouraging for you if you're a parent or you're uh, young and single. Uh, if you are interested in participating in the fall semester, uh, I know that uh, Sandy has a soft heart. Uh, or Grace is also one of our registrars now, so they have a soft heart for uh, church people here. If you'd like to participate, talk with them before the start of the semester because this is, is a great opportunity to join in on that. Uh, I have, if any of you, I have a father-son gathering that we've been doing for, well, I don't know, it's about six months now. It's been just really neat on Sunday nights. This next week, I'm going to be doing a filming project on uh, the father-son material. And if you're interested in potentially participating in that uh, this next week, uh, you might want to poke at me on that point. Now, I'd love to give you the details on that, all right? So I gave a message, I don't know if it was a couple years ago. Uh, it was called The Pattern Passers. And so uh, it was a very significant, informative message, I think, for us as a leadership to really put a, some phraseology to some of the things that are stirring inside of us and some of the things that are coming against us as the church today. We have a lot of people that are rising up in the church that are claiming to be led of the Holy Spirit to be creating new scripture. Okay, I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, you can ask me how I feel about that. Yeah, I, I, and yet what that does is it leads to a, a question, well, how do you know that someone couldn't write new scripture? It's, it's a good question. That's, in, when I was dealing with the pattern pastors, that's what I was talking about. I was talking about the difference between a capital A apostle and a lowercase a apostle. There's just a difference. And uh, there's still an apostolic position within the church, but it's very different than someone who's going to create the pattern, lay it out in the New Testament, and then hand it down through the generations. We are 
a people that have received something that God has supplied to us. And so there's this idea in Scripture of a pattern, a form. And so it's, I'm making a statement. Moses received a pattern to pass. How did he receive it? Supernaturally. He went up into a mountain and encountered God for 40 days and 40 nights. And he came down and he had something. He didn't just have tablets of stone. He was shown something in the mountain. As it says over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, Moses received something in that mountain. He's supposed to build a tabernacle after that pattern that he saw in the mountain. He's supposed to build the insides and the furniture according to the pattern as he saw in the mountain. So he saw something, he encountered something, and then he passed it. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern which you were shown on the mountain. And then if you want to look it up, I gave you a whole bunch of more scriptures that are going to say the exact same thing about every detail. He was shown something, and then he built it, or he wrote it down. The first five books are written by Moses, and he would have written them after those 40 days on the mountain. In other words, what he encountered was something that we needed. And so how does he know that in the beginning there was God, and that God created the heavens and the earth? How does Moses know that? Well, not only is he a Jew, but... He also received something in the mountain, and scripture came forth. The Holy Spirit moved upon this man, and he wrote. David received a pattern to pass. It's interesting because Moses built the tabernacle, David built the temple, and both of them received something supernaturally, and that is this pattern, this architectural design for a house. First Chronicles uh, 28 details this. Then David gave to Solomon, his son, the pattern of the porch. And of the houses thereof, and of the treasuries thereof, and of the upper chambers thereof, and of the inner parlors thereof, and of the place of the mercy seat, and the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit, of the courts of the house of the Lord, and of all the chambers round about, of the treasuries of the house of God, and of all the treasuries of the dedicated things. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me, even all the works of this pattern. There's a pattern that was given. It's interesting what it's for. It's for this house of God, this tabernacle, this temple, and which is known as the house of God. Now, Jesus in the New Testament is going to shock everyone by saying, you do know that I am that temple. You do know that this is fulfilled in me. Tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. But the temple of which he spoke was his body. You see, the body of Christ, now just listen closely, the body of Christ is the temple of God. So there's this pattern, as we see with Moses, we see all throughout history, not just them, we see with David, specific spirit-led impartation to these men who see something and then write it down so that we would recognize it when it came. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. But in essence, the Bible is given to us so that we could see something. What? Jesus. But listen closely. So that Jesus could be revealed through a body and be recognizable, be seen. That this house of God, this temple of God, would be constructed according to a pattern. And this pattern has been given to us. There is a perfect pattern for the house. So when you look at Ezekiel 43, you're going to see the same thing. Now what's interesting about Ezekiel 43, well, it's Ezekiel, it's quite a few chapters in Ezekiel. I'm just reading one little piece of it. But there's this, it's called the Ezekiel Temple. 
people would say it's never been built. Well, I would say, no, it's been built. It's just a person. And that's what's a little shocking. It's like, wait a minute. This, why, why has God given us these dimensions and this architectural design for a temple that was never built? Well, no, it's the temple of perfection. Its measurements are perfect. And listen to this. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangements, its exits and its entrances, its entire design and all its ordinances, all its forms and all its laws. Write it down in their sight so that they may keep its whole design and all its ordinances and perform them. It's interesting because this pattern, this architectural design of a temple, I don't know if anyone has ever slipped you an architectural design and you were cut to the heart and convicted of your sin. You see, it isn't normal that someone would be convicted and have their, ex their sin exposed because of some, someone's drawing of an architectural design. Yet this one is the design and the perfection of the temple of God, what you were intended to be and who Jesus actually is. See, God designed us to reveal him. We are, in a sense, the house of God. You see, a lot of people confuse the building with the house of God. Like, oh, and we're meeting in the house of God today. When in actuality, God is meeting in the house of God today. But that's us. And we could move this outside and it would still be the house of God. You see, we are the house of God corporately and we're also the house of God individually. And so what we do as individuals affects the corporate. And what we do as the corporate affects the individual. We have something very, very precious here. And it's something that the enemy wants to snuff out. It is a delicate, delicate balance oftentimes. If any of you have ever been in church leadership or have been in other churches, there is such an easy way to slide out of center and into an off-balance form. It is very easy, which is why you see Paul, every time he would write his epistles, you would see him give commission, give reminders. He had concerns for the body of Christ, lest this happen. He doesn't want to see that unity marred. He wants to see it protected, but he knows that there is an enemy that is seeking to devour the church. This is God's chosen vehicle of revelation. This is the house of God. It's the believers. And when we gather together, there is a special something that takes place. You see, I can reveal Jesus by myself. I can walk down a sidewalk out here and someone could come up to me and I pray that they would encounter Jesus' behavior when they encounter me. However, there is something even more powerful than individual Eric when we work together as the body functioning in our gifts in the way that we are uniquely designed and we work together in love. And that is something that we have tasted of here in a way that is beautiful, spectacular. I can think of moments throughout the past 10 years which are breathtaking, extraordinary, precious. And it came not because I did something, but because God did something in and through a body. I've had a lot of pain that has come to me through the body of Christ. And I would say, Almost all of that, I'm not saying I haven't had any pain in the last 10 years in this body, but for the most part, almost all of it is before this started. This has been very, very precious for me personally. It has instructed my soul in such a beautiful way in the significance of the body, the importance of it. 
there are things and movements that God has done in this body where he's aiming us somewhere because there's rightful criticism that could come towards our body that we have not progressed very far in regards to this, 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 or this. You know, like, well, how are you doing with your whole evangelism thing? Eric, I've heard you bring that up multiple times. How's the church doing? Well, I would say it'd be a reasonable critique that we are, we know more than we oftentimes implement. How are you doing with uh, the old participatory church thing? You know, where everyone brings their gift, their, 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 what was it, Danish? What was it, pastry? Everyone brings their pastry and then we, how are we doing? Well, I think it'd be a reasonable critique that we know of things, but we haven't yet known how to implement. But I would say if you cut all of us open, you would find that all of us desire it. And that's where I think it starts. It doesn't start with the fact that we are the mature, finished product. It starts with the fact that we desire to be. And we desire to be correctable. We desire to st stand before the word of God and say, God, if I'm not right with your architectural design, then I'm willing for you to start in this room right here in the temple. Fix this room. I want this body, this temple to be correct. And if you need to correct me as a room in that house, start here. And when you have a church that gathers like that, where everyone is humbled before the same scripture, before the same word, and all of us are willing to be corrected, I guarantee you that living water is gonna flow in and through this temple and out of this temple into this world. It's how it works. God has given us a pattern and a design. We need to cherish it and keep it. So Paul says it this way, hold fast the form. I really like that phraseology. It's a little more old-fashioned, uh, hold fast. That's like one of those things that I always uh, like. I like the phrase for it. I don't know if any of you understand what it means, hold fast. Well, how do you do that? It means to have a firm grip on something. Grip it with unyielding resolve. I will not let go. So hold fast. We're supposed to hold fast something. What is it? The form. The pattern. We are supposed to hold this pattern as if it is essential. And you cannot lose it. If you're in a war and you have a sword, hold fast that sword. Because if you lose it, you're really going to stink it up in battle. And you're likely going to go down. So hold fast to that hilt. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. So what you're going to see is this pattern in Scripture of someone who receives the pattern and then passes the pattern. And that's where you get the term pattern passers. Moses was a pattern passer. Who did he pass it on to? Well, he passed it on to the whole nation, right? But very specifically, he, he passed off his position to Joshua. David was a pattern passer. Who was he giving? He didn't actually build the temple. Solomon did. Where'd Solomon get the pattern from? From David. Well, that's very, very significant to recognize that there is a pattern given and then David passes it to Solomon and then Solomon implements not his own pattern, but the pattern that he received from David. And what we see here is Paul is saying the same thing. I've given you a pattern for how to build the church. Hold it fast. Keep it tight. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. They have heard something from Paul. What do you do with that? You keep it. You keep those words. The apostle Paul received a pattern to pass. Just like Moses, just like David, Paul did as well. 
And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It doesn't say invent new things for your generation to pass on, but to pass on what you heard from Paul. You've been entrusted something, now take that and pass it. You see, there's something that is very distinct between Moses, David, and Paul that is different than Eric Ludi. I don't know if you can figure out what it is. Now, I don't want you to throw out comments about that. Well, they were significant. You're not. You know, you could. You could say that, and I'm sure that would be correct. But there is a distinction. In other words, I could be a man of God. It doesn't mean I need to, we need to belittle Eric Ludi just to try and make a point. It's just that there is a distinction between Moses, David, Paul, and the guy standing before you right now. And yet, I care about Jesus. The Spirit of God moves in me. What, what's the What's the significant difference that I'm bringing up? Eric Ludi received a pattern to pass. What? Well, it sounds like you're putting yourself on the same page. Unfortunately, you can't see it clearly, but the P in pass is supposed to be lowercase. Okay, and this is an all caps font, so it doesn't come, come through as clearly. In other words, I'm to pass something, but not capital P pass. In other words, I'm not the one on Mount Sinai for 40 days receiving the text of Scripture. I'm not the one who was sleeping in a bed in Jerusalem and had a vision of the temple and was walked through every room and knew every detail and then was able to pass it on to Solomon. I'm not the guy who spent three years in Arabia and was taught personally by the Holy Spirit how to build the New Testament church. That's not me. That's not a degradation of who Eric is. It's not a diminishment. It's just saying that's not me. I need to know my position in this. And yet I'm still entrusted with something to pass to you. But it's what I heard from Moses. It's what I heard from David. It's what I heard from Paul. I'm not coming up with something new. If this church is going to thrive, it continues to be a pattern-passing church in the sense that it recognizes we are not inventing Christianity. We are not inventing the way the church should function. We are heeding what God says about it. We are not making a new novel way of doing it. And I tell you what, the dangers towards the new novel way of Christianity are right there in front of us for the taking right now. That's the great movement of the spirit of the age is to rebuild, to remodel, to redo instead of to go and do what God himself has assigned us to do. So recognizing the difference between capital P passers and lowercase p passers. Every single one of you is commissioned to be a lowercase p passer. But what are you passing? I should have a Bible up here with me. I could hold it up. We're not passing Eric's ideas along. You're not going to pass Bob Gazaway's ideas along, Bo Matzett's ideas along, Steve Osborne's ideas along. We're passing God's ideas along. And the effective church is the one that gets out of the way and loses all self-interest and self-glory and is interested solely in the word of God being proclaimed. Even if it means I look like an idiot in front of all of you, it makes no difference. I have to commission you to test everything I'm saying. And if you find that what I'm saying doesn't match with the word of God, I have to encourage you to go with the word of God over Eric Ludi. That's healthy leadership in the church. Because Jesus is the leader here. His word is the leader here. And anyone who takes this position that I have been in needs to recognize that. And the reason we have confidence in laying hands on these men is because they tremble before the word of God. What makes a leader is good is different in every situation. 
sometimes we look at leaders and we say, well, it's this quality. Like they're a speaker. They know how to expound on scripture this way. And you can argue, you know, up one side down the other of what makes a good leader. But you could notice if you were to study leadership throughout history, it's those that allow the spirit of God to take them in their uniqueness and live boldly through them. And so the leadership that is going to step into this role is going to be different than me. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as they are allowing the Holy Spirit to work through them. As long as they're humble before the word of God. You see, when a leader steps into any position, they will be different. I remember it was a, it was a difficult thing when John Elway retired. I actually cried at his retirement ceremony. <laughs> sort of embarrassing to think about. But I mean, that, that's how... Uh, he had an unhealthy position in my life. Uh, but it was a big deal for me. And then I remember a guy named Brian Greasy stepped into his quarterback position afterwards. I just feel bad for the guy still to this day. There was no way the guy could survive that job. He's filling the shoes of literally this, according to my opinion, the greatest quarterback that ever played. There's always these other people that have these other opinions. I don't know. But the point being, at any transition or juncture, you can either be glad to get someone out, because there's people that hated John Elway, right? People are like, finally, he's gone. And then you have the other people that are always measuring against something. You're not going to have another John Elway. You're going to have something different, but it does not mean lesser. It depends on the yieldedness and the readiness to serve and to give according to what that pattern is. I feel like we have something very, very special in this church that has a vision to foster and to build up that which has begun. So this is my statement after that. The pattern I'm passing, this is me speaking, is not something I saw on Mount Sinai, received in a vision or dream while sleeping in Jerusalem, or had spoken to me in an Arabian desert by means of revelation. Over these past 10 years, I've passed on to you simply that which Moses, David, and Paul passed on to me, the revelation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, the 66 books of canonized scripture. The same Holy Spirit that carried Moses, David, and Paul and the other writers of the scriptures along to write down the scripture is the same one that has helped us as a body to understand and receive that scripture these past 10 years. The passing of a mantle. It's interesting because this passing of a mantle is accompanied with something. Now, those of you that have ever heard the, or seen the video, The Ancient War Cry, uh, which is deeply stirring, it shocks me anytime that ever I've heard that played. I come onto the, the screen in that one like yelling at the top of my lungs. Where's our war cry or something? It scares me. So if you're scared by that, just know I'm with you, okay? I, I didn't say, hey, let's pick that exact spot at my highest volume and start it right there. That's just how it happened. And yet, there's something deeply stirring about it to have it be so loud and so strong. In ancient Israel, they had an understanding of a war cry. We don't think of it as a war cry when we hear the words, be strong and of good courage. Just a nice encouragement to us. But to even the Israeli military today, that's the war cry of Israel. And it's the word chasak and amats. And oftentimes, many of them will say, rakasak. And so many of you have heard me say that over the years, but it's interesting. I want you to identify the simple fact that this War cry is associated with a commission. It is a passing off of a pattern. You're passing off a pattern, you're passing off a mantle, and with it comes a charge. And it's a charge to be strong and of good courage. The word strong and of good courage actually falls short of the 
strength of what is being said in that charge. So from Moses to Joshua, and Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Hasak, Hamatz, for thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord has sworn unto their fathers to give them, and thou shalt cause them to inherit it. It's a big moment, okay? And he says this over and over again. And then when jo Joshua comes into the land, this is what he's saying to the people. This is a charge that was passed down throughout history. And then it comes to David, David to Solomon. And David said to Solomon, his son, Sock! Amatz! That's what he said. Where's he getting that from? Did he invent it? No, this is the pattern that has been passed. There's a pattern even for passing off the pattern and the authority and the mantle. And it's accompanied with a war cry. Isn't that interesting? So let's keep going through this. Be, David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and of good courage and do it. Well, that's a great statement. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee, until thou hast finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. You see anything appropriate about that right about now? In other words, this is a passing off of a mantle. And with it comes an ancient war cry. From Paul to the church. Now we're in a different language now. We're not in Hebrew, we're in Greek which causes us to oftentimes miss this. When you take, it's called the Septuagint, but it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And you go to what Moses said to, jo from Moses said to Joshua and what David said to Solomon. You know when you translate that into the Greek? You know what it says? You know what Moses said in the Greek to Joshua? Andrizomai. You know what David said to Solomon in the Greek, according to the Septuagint? Andrizomai. You know what Paul says to the church at Corinth right here? Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, and threezomai, be strong. He literally gives the ancient war cry to the church of Jesus Christ, which roughly translated is, be a man. Play the man. Do what a man would do right now. Rise up, be strong, be firm, be resolute. Do not fear that enemy. Sure, he's triple your size. Go in and take him down. Yeah, I think we need that about now in the church. Don't you feel like our enemy is about triple our size? Right now, you look at the culture, and they're getting bigger by the day. The spirit of the age seems to be louder by the day. The church is becoming more and more dwarfish. I don't know if you feel it. I said to the group of uh, leaders on Saturday, well, yesterday morning, I said, never in my life as a Christian have I sensed such a weakness in the leadership of the church. Right now, mark this day, and I would say right now in all of my life as a Christian, I've never felt such a weakness in spiritual leadership. And this is our hour. This is the hour we got assigned. That's what I was telling them. It's like, well, obviously we need some men to stand up. Looks like it's you guys. That's what we need. We need that charge to our soul. Hey, guys, be strong and of good courage. Hasak, Hamatz, and Threesomai, whichever one works for you. It's the same thing. It's a charge to our soul. I mean, what, you get a football team together, and they're about to play a, a game. What do they do? They all stick their hands in the middle, and they do their little thing. What are they doing? It's charge is what it is. They're, we could say it this way. They're charging themselves up. 
Now, you can charge yourselves up on false emotion or on the truth of Jesus Christ. He has won the victory. He has defeated our enemy. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. If God be for us, who can stand against us? No weapon fashioned against us shall prosper. That's a charge. That's what the war cry is. Remember, remember he is victorious. You do not need to fear him. You see, we need a fresh charge right now. Whenever you feel like strength is remo being removed from your midst, which is true in this situation, you rise up. It's arguable, right? Joshua was even a stronger leader than Moses. It doesn't mean better or worse. It just means what God did was even greater than the first. And so in the spiritual lineage, what we see is its strength when it's handed off, when it's handed off properly with a charge, when a mantle is handed off, that you don't need to lower your expectations. You actually can raise them. And oftentimes it's that next step forward that God breaks through and parts Jordan rivers and you walk across on dry land and see entire embattlements fall that have been standing there for generations. I don't know what lies ahead for this church, but I don't see it needing to go into the dirt. I see it ready to get stronger and more robust. I feel like we're set up for that. It does not mean that we're not going to be hit. It does not mean that there will not be a tactical maneuver against it. It just means that there is no reason why it needs to get weaker. I believe it can get stronger. The impartation of the ancient war cry, a sock. Lamots. So Hasak, roughly translated, tenacity. The game face of a mighty man. You ever seen the offensive lineman with the, the, the war paint underneath his eyes? And he's, he's, what's he staring at when he's staring at the other lineman? They're staring each other in the eye, and he's growling. That's what you're supposed to get on. Now, what's funny about the battle that we're in is we're dwarfish in size next to the demonic host that we're up against. However, we growl. That's what we're being told to do. Growl at them. Get your game face on. You do know that they're defeated, right? Well, they're big. They're giants. I know. But I crush their head at the cross. Prove it in the natural realm. Your job is to act in faith, to move forward in faith. So tenacity, the game face of a mighty man, the gritting of teeth, the flush of spiritual fervor, the tensing of a soldier's muscles, and whitening of his knuckles. He's ready. And Amats, roughly translated, audacity. See, this is like craziness. If you're a lamb, it's like scampering into a lion's lair and taking what belongs to him. It's like, no, 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 lamb, don't do that. You do realize that you would be lunch. I know, but God gave me the assignment, Amatz. You see, Amatz is, is audacity. It's, in, in the world's eyes, it's craziness. No one in their right mind would do that, except for a Christian who's marked by faith and who knows that God has commissioned him to do it. Yeah, I'll go in and spoil the enemy's goods, but that enemy is so much more powerful than you, but he's not more powerful than my God that I serve. So therefore, I'm going in. Audacity, the rushing headlong into the most hazardous and impossible battles without pausing to consider the impossibilities. That's where most of us stop. We pause to consider the impossibilities. Like, this is impossible. 
Don't spend time on the impossible. He's the God of the impossible. If it's impossible, that's his territory. You're right where you should be. It's a confidence in victory even before the field is taken. Wouldn't that be nice? Even before you go out to take this step forward, you already know God's won. You must walk in that. That's a motz. You need hasak and a motz. Where you all are going, we all are headed, we are all in different seasons of our life, in different places, going through different dramas. Every single one of us in here. If I were to you know, take the microphone around and we were prepared for it, it'd be rather intimidated if I just started doing it. And I said, describe this last season. Some of you, it would be a season of breakthrough, triumph and joy. Some of you, this is the hardest season you've ever walked through in your life. We're, we're a melting pot of all sorts of things here. Same truth for every single one of us. It works, guys. We are the church of Jesus Christ and we have not been left as orphans. We have been given everything we need to thrive in this thing called life. Even through our difficulties, even through our challenges, there are some of you in here that this last season has left you to a point in a state where you didn't even know if you could keep going in life. That's how intense it is. I know many of you have gone through. This has been an excruciating season for many of you. And yet, here you are. And we have a hope and a future. We have a job to do. The same God that has carried you all the way to this point is the same God who's gonna carry us onward and upward. So if you ever went through an Ellerslie semester, you might recognize this statement. There are three things. I'm not gonna share that story. That's my most embarrassing moment. Yeah, I know, that would be a fun way to finish, uh, wouldn't this? Uh, but I, I, that's not what this is for. That's more just side humor, Eric humor. Because whenever you do a list of three things, now it feels awkward. But there are three things. There are three things that I want to remind you of as I am passing off a baton, am I, as I am giving a mantle of authority. There are three things that God has deeply burdened me for in my time here. And there have been key moments where I've seen it. And I've seen the significance of it. And then I've walked for multiple weeks at times trying to convey something that God is doing inside of me. And so what I want to do is I want to lay those three things before you afresh and just say, remember what has been given us. And don't just let it drop, but hold on to the heritage from which we come. We are a very unusual body in the sense that we are a mixture of all sorts of different denominational persuasions and perspectives. And in the church of Jesus Christ, that's not supposed to work. That's the rule book. According to the rule book that we have, modern Christianity, we can't get along with each other. We have to denominationalize and eliminate all the fringe people, all the weird people that think that, that think this, that think this, and isolate ourselves with those that think like us and then form a church around that. We have, we have violated that on purpose. We have said that we believe the church of Jesus Christ is brought together not on agreement with every peripheral doctrine, but on agreement on the most salient, central ones, starting with Jesus and what he did on that cross. As we say, the word of God in text, the scripture, the word of God in person, Jesus Christ, the word of God in action, the cross, the word of God in us, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the word of God through us, the giving of life to this world around us. Those five fingers of truth, of the word of God, is what binds us together. We believe that that word is true. 
There's a whole bunch of Christians out there that question it. No, we will not question the word of God in text. It was given to us by God, men carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is still just as valid today as it was way back when. And what does it reveal? It supernaturally reveals one man that would come. And we see that it reveals that Jesus Christ is that one that came. And that what he did on that cross, the word of God in action, is the essence of our salvation. One man fulfilled it. And what that one man did is everything to us. And we'll stake our eternity right there. And because of what that one man did, he has made a way for us to become the dwelling place of the Most High God. And the Holy Spirit wants to move in and make us his home. And when that happens, watch out world. Because now God is living in man. And he desires to showcase who he is through us as a church. We may differ on subtleties all surrounding that. But if we can rally around what matters and what is central, we have something very, very special here. So let me go through the three things real quick. Praying and confessing. <sighs> Deep burden for me. Still is. Everything that I'm doing with uh, Ellerslie is about this. It's basically building missionaries. It's building people that are ready to go, to serve, to give, to, to speak boldly. And so if I'm going to remind you of something, it would be the praying and confessing church. It's not like it's an optional version of Christianity, like, oh, in this church over here, they're a praying church. Every church has to be a praying church. And it's like, oh, well, this church is one that really believes in evangelism. All of us need to believe in that. Does that make sense? In other words, I, I want you to take this burden. I don't want us to settle where we're at. I don't want us to just pitch our tent stakes right here and say, well, you know what? We're, we're healthy. We're staying together. I want us to press into deeper territory where we are a church that cannot help but share the life of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we begin to multiply. One of our biggest challenges in here is we have no room to grow. And so as a result, it's almost like we're curtailed in the evangelistic side because what good would it do? We'd have no place for them to come anyways. It's a funny problem to have. And yet I want us to stare it in the face and say, God, we don't want to lose what you have planted inside of us. There's many of us in here that can track back to some of those messages when God was stirring us in regards to evangelism and, and speaking and giving, and it, it moved us, it changed us. I don't want to lose that. I want to hearken back to that right now and build a little pile of stones to say, hey guys, I want to remember what God was doing. The heaven-bred war horse. Now, you have to have been around for quite a while to know what that is, but there was a change in military history and it happened uh, by a guy named William Wallace. Our, the name Ellerslie just happens to be his birthplace and his estate. Okay, he wasn't born here in Windsor, but it's named after it. And so as a result, I have a kinship with this, but he changed military history. He was up against a greater foe. Uh, Edward I was, I mean, just a uh, dominant, had a dominant uh, force, uh, his military strength, and they always use the feudal style of warfare. You know, you walk in a line, boom, 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 sort of like Lord of the Rings style. And in that style of warfare, your job is to keep your, your, your face forward. You need to know your position and your rank, and you need to be rank and file and stand in that position and don't let anything move you out of that position. And so Wallace invented something. 
He had, a, he had this like pathetic army uh, full of farmers and pitchforks. You know, it's one of those types of things. He gets horses from Ireland known as, uh, they were called the Hobbelar horse. We know them as hobby horses. But they were the first time in all of history that horses had been bred, and they were right at the fullness of that, that could actually run on mountains, and they were swift at the same time. So they were fast, and they were dexterous. And he brought them over and stuck his swordsmen on the side of them and sent them into the side of Edward's ranks. And they would come through and just cut everyone down. And Wallace defeated a more powerful foe by reinventing warfare. He caught them, get this, where their defenses weren't up. Here's my burden, guys. This has been a burden for a long time. We live in a generation that has their defenses up against what we represent. I want God to give us the hobbler for this generation. I want to reach this generation. I do not want to sit on our thumbs just because it seems impossible. I want us to dream big. I want us to go after this generation instead of let this generation take the world. This is God's territory. These are people whose eternities are hanging in the balance and we just happen to have the truth. So, heaven-bred warhorse. I want to pray for him. I don't want to give it up. I, all throughout history, God has changed the course of history and, the, and of nations by bringing about a hobbler. Gideon, literally with just a ragtag bunch, thwarts hundreds of thousands of men. Why? Because he obeyed God. David picks up five smooth stones and takes down the greatest warrior of his generation. That wasn't the plan. How does that work? He, in, he newly invented warfare. All throughout history, it's the lightning war. It's where you change everything up and you hit the enemy hard. I'm interested. It's like, sign me up. I want to reach this generation and we need God's wisdom in order to do it. The participatory church, when I talk about spiritual gifts, it stirs each of you in a different way. And what I know God has done here is he has begun something. For some of you, it's not happened quick enough and it's been a frustration point. For some of you, it's scaring you to death. And yet, I feel like this church has tasted something where we know, we all agree with the scripture that all of us have something to bring. But how we bring it and how we share in that strength, I've seen us take steps forward in that. And I feel like the leadership that we currently have that, are, that is going to be taking the helm here, I feel like they will be gifted in this. I feel like it's a passion point for them as well. We may all subtly disagree on certain aspects of spiritual gifts, but that's where we need to guard the integrity of the unity and how we walk through these things. But the concept is, you notice I'm not calling it just spiritual gifts. I'm talking, I'm saying participatory church. In other words, it's a church where we all are working together. When we come together, it's not just a talking head. It's a talking body. And we are functioning together. What that looks like, maybe that's the hobbler. I don't know. But these are burdens. These are burdens that I've carried for years. It's a desire to see something move forward. You've heard me say this. I can change myself, but I don't know exactly how to change a church. I'm dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do that. The, the leadership that will be stepping into this role is going to have the same challenge. And yet, I think God still desires to move this body forward in these directions. So I submit that without expectation, without strings attached to this body. I'm just leaving you with a commission. 
It's an instruction. It's like, hey, wear your coat and put on your gloves. It's going to be cold out there. The devil is going to come in to this body and try and take your focus off of Jesus Christ and him crucified. He'll try and get it on some side issue, which will seem very important to you. And I'm going to tell you right now, guard that center. Guard the focus on Christ as if it is your life. Hold fast the form of sound words. So I'm going to call this our church's bucket list. And we could sort of go through and see how many things we've checked off over the years. But way back when I created this list, maybe it was even at the beginning of, our, of the local church development. But I'm calling it our church's bucket list. And as I go through this, there's things like, you know what? Yeah, that is there. And then there's other things like, eh, yeah, we haven't really done that. And so I'm just giving it as a reminder. These are burden points from the one who was before. As I'm passing this along, I simply want to give you a vision and an excitement and a stirring. I trust that this leadership will be able to follow God and heed the Holy Spirit to walk the path that they are commissioned to walk. But I also want to say this is from where we've come and this is where we were headed. And to the degree that that matches where God wants to take us, I want us to remember it. So be a church that is always uncomfortable. It's been a great desire of mine is to make sure you guys are always uncomfortable. I don't know. I think you might be a little too comfortable right now. So I don't know if I've, I may have failed in that one. Be a church that is always wanting more of Jesus Christ. You know how many churches are satisfied? I believe we're a church that wants more of Jesus Christ. If you were to quiz us all, do you want to stay where you're at? Do you feel content or do you want more? I think it's a high percentage of us in here that actually crave more. That's a highly unusual and irregular thing, normal to us. Let's cherish it. Be a church that rejoices in all things. I would say one of the things that I would commend this body for is we have suffered well. There's so many of you in here that I have watched you go through extreme difficulties and you've done it well. And I just want to say that as a pastor, that is one of the great testimonies of faith. It has greatly encouraged me to watch that maturity form within you. Be a church that forgets how to fear and only knows how to trust. Be a church packed full of new believers. I don't think we've really done that yet, but that does not mean that isn't still where we should head. You see, if we're a church packed full of new believers, something's happening in here, guys. And that's something that I'm not saying we don't desire, I'm just saying that we don't know how to implement well. Be a church where 30% of the congregation would be termed full-time missionaries. In other words, we are a sending church. And so at any point in time, many of us in here are working full-time to build the kingdom of heaven. And the rest are supporting it. In other words, we are actively engaged in this. Be a church in which 100% of the believers inside it are involved in active discipleship. In other words, everyone is being discipled at some level. And every person is learning to disciple. You see, we want to be a church that is both receiving and constantly giving. Be a church that prays together, often and always, fervently and with persistence. Be a church that gives of their time, their talents, their resources, and their lives. Be a church in which everyone is an evangelist and every believer is actively leading people to Christ. Be a church that becomes known as the happiest church in the world. Those are still wonderful desires. So whether or not we've reached it, I mean, you could 
have one of my children that map out like, what do you want to become in your life? And they could map out a bucket list and we could measure them a couple years later and say, well, you sure haven't become that yet. And it's not necessarily that we reach it in full maturity, it's that we continue to take steps forward. That's what maturity is. You don't expect a seven-year-old to be finished, nor do you expect a nine-year-old to be finished, nor would you say a 12-year-old should be fully mature yet. You understand that they're a work in process. However, if a 12-year-old is still behaving like they did when they're seven, then something is stunted in the process. So what I would desire in this church body is that not that we're finished or not that everything that we would desire to be in its full uh, orbed state is there, but that we aren't where we were, but that we're constantly pressing forward, and that's individually and it's corporately. Each one of us, to make that happen, has to be willing to get uncomfortable personally. We have to be willing to say, God, start with me. You can't wait for someone else in the church to get serious about Jesus. You have to be serious about Jesus. And as a result, being serious about Jesus is like a flame that gets passed from one person to the next. You ever notice that when you sit down with someone from the church and they start telling you what's going on in their spiritual life, that you get convicted and that you get inspired and you get moved? It's like, I should do that too. That's how we work together. But if you're not moving forward with Jesus Christ, then they get together with you at coffee and you, you actually slow them down because, like, well, he's not doing it. I guess I don't need to either. We need to inspire one another to rise higher. So this goes back to my message three weeks ago on the endless frontier mentality. Pull up those tent stakes. Onward march. A sock. Amats and Dridzamai. Be strong and have good courage. Made it all the way to my last words. Uh, I love you guys. I have a great desire to see you thrive in the kingdom of heaven. I have the utmost respect for the men that are taking the leadership here. And I feel at peace with next steps. I'm right here too. It's not like I'm heading to Argentina. You just will not probably see me as often in this gathering, but I hope and pray that that doesn't hinder in any way our relationship with one another, nor my relationship with the church, nor my ability to be here and present on Sundays. And so I just want you to know that I love you. And though it is with pain, grief, but good grief, that I'm walking through this process, I'm glad that I have it. I'm glad that I have pain in it. And I'm glad I'm not just cheering inside to finally get this sermon done so I can lay hands and, and get out. It is, a, it is a deep challenge at one side and yet very significant in my soul on the other. So thank you guys for being so gracious and how you've walked through that with us. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. 
Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.